You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 207 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. How are you going since I last spoke to you? Which wasn't that long ago because no. we're doing a pre-record <laughs> to get ahead while you are on your big American road trip. Yes. And uh, yeah, so in episode 207, this is a really cool topic that we're going to be covering, which is how to photograph interiors and architecture with special guest Wayne Chassan. Yes. Now, before we get onto that, we have a shout out to someone with the unusual name of September. Um, they've They've left us a review on iTunes. I love that name. I'd name my kid September. I'm going to name my next cat September. Well, yeah, actually, Louisa, you you and I know Louisa. Her dad is called Septimo, which isn't September, it's seven, because he's the seventh born. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Close. But anyway, uh, September has headed the review favourite podcast and they've said, I recently discovered this podcast and I'm so glad I did. I originally thought that I didn't know who Gina Militia was until I noticed that she's the author of several e-books that I purchased a few years back. No wonder I love this podcast so much because if you've ever seen her books, she is incredibly thorough and has so many visual images to help your understanding of photography posing, lighting, etc. Now I get to soak in even more of her knowledge as I listen to the podcast. I also love how Valerie Koo adds her own explanations, questions or clarifications to something Gina is talking about and takes everything to that next level of understanding. A podcast never ends where I feel they didn't quite cover something I wanted to hear and that amazes me every time. It feels like you're sitting with two friends and sharing your passion of photography with each other. I just love it. Wow. That's awesome, September. (laughs) Thank you, September. That's That's just like the best like review ever i really love it thank you so much do we review the reviews the like should there be another section where you get in there and like you go best review ever five stars september (laughs) all the best review ever thank Mm, you mm. thank you and if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on itunes that would be so awesome we'd be really Grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, Gina, you interviewed Wayne Chassan this week. Do tell. Well, Wayne is an amazing, amazing photographer and there is a very special skill to taking photos of interiors, architecture, lifestyle and making something that's not alive come to life and that's the first thing I noticed when I first saw Wayne's work and I've been lucky enough to watch him work and uh, I, I just love how he 
does that. And so uh, I asked him to come on the show and maybe share some tips. And he was really generous and uh, gave us some 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 insights into like we really got into how he thinks and plans a shoot. So it's more it's like it's not just about well you need this lens and you know mm. th- th- this is how I do it. He really went deep in the thought process and why he thinks like that and why he does that and why he puts that there. So like heaps and heaps and heaps of great takeaways from how he scouts locations, how he plans a shoot, what to ask the clients. That was a ripper. And then working with daylight and how, how he adds that special life. And that's like that Duke of Light and also how he works with daylight and like next level stuff, Valerie. Wayne is the kind of photographer that like you look at his inst- he's always on a plane, he's always flying to some beautiful and exotic location and his photos are amazing. So like so much good stuff. So I hope you enjoy the uh, episode, guys. <laughs> Wayne, welcome to the show. How are you going? I'm doing great. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to chat to you. Before we start, where in the world am I speaking to you from? Uh, Well, I am in Spain, southern Spain, Marbella. It's a big tourist resort area, and I often say that I live in Marbella. It's close to Spain, but it is a very important part of Spain's coast and tourist industry here. It's a very cosmopolitan sort of Saint-Tropez, Ibiza hotspot. It sounds amazing. And in your <laughs> own words, what sort of photography do you do? What, what do you specialize in? Well, I specialize in architectural and interiors, um, very much focused actually on hospitality, resort development. So in general, my clients tend to be more the promoters, the developers, the golf resorts, the hotel companies, more perhaps so than architects per se, although and, I do serve them as well. And you, you're like based in Spain, but that's not where you do the majority of your work, is it? You're constant. Like I, I see your Instagram and I'm following you there and you're always on a plane somewhere beautiful and exotic. So like you're flying all around the world and based where you are, it's like some of them are compared to Australia. It's like a, a you know, a couple of hours or a few hour trips. Although, uh, we bumped into each other in Western Australia a, a couple of months ago and then you went on. <laughs> like the most ridiculous <laughs> trip after it that. It was a little crazy. It was a little crazy for, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see my body can still take that kind of stuff. I, I flew to Florida, landed, worked for about four or five hours in the evening, went to bed, got up, worked uh, in the morning, caught the flight to Sydney and then to Perth, uh, had a brief respite, then launched into work and then we were supposed to carry on to another European job that got delayed, so they gave me a choice, either continue your way around the world, which would have been shorter, and go home, and I kind of went, well, since I don't have anything planned, could you send me backwards the longer way? I really use a stop in LA on my way home, and that's what we did. Crazy, crazy. So It, it was a bit. 
I can see the attraction in what you do. Your work is absolutely beautiful. But like, let's uh, let's just uh, rewind back a bit. Why photography? Why why did you choose photography? What is it about that work that you love? Okay, photography actually kind of chose me. I have always been interested in the art since I was a kid. Uh, magic shows, uh, theater, um, songwriting, short stories. I was always involved in the arts in one way or another. And at 14, I was very fortunate to get an apprenticeship in San Francisco Bay Area's largest video studio where I made unusual for the time in 1978 a like 10-minute science fiction flick about being the first man going to Mars, um, which won an honorary mention in the Bay Area Awards that year, I think only because I was 14 and it was so out of the context at the time that I, I yeah, it wasn't that great a film. But um, anyhow, I, I've always had a deep love for music and uh, I'm a drummer. Well, I'm not actually a drummer, but I play the drums and um, I write songs on guitar. I'm, I also don't consider myself a guitarist, but I write songs on the guitar. And I could never make up my mind between the visual world of the video and photography that I started getting into and music. And it was I – seem, I remember around 17 years old seeing my life branch out in front of me and – my life was taking me in the direction of the visuals, of the image, of photography, and I had to stop and say, am I happy with this choice? And I went, yes, I am. I'll keep music as my love and my hobby, and I'll keep photography as my love and my business. Wow. And um, never regretted it. That's interesting. Uh, another photographer that I interviewed uh, a few shows back, Ian Weldon, who's a documentary wedding photographer, uh, was also uh, in, in two minds about whether to be a musician or a photographer. He also chose photography. And I think there are a lot of similarities in mastering um, music and the, the craft of photography. And it all comes down to uh, discipline and doing the work. But like, how do you see the similarities between the two? I mean, you can't just uh, learn the drums by, pick, you know, picking up the drumsticks once a month or you've got to really be disciplined. No, no. Whatever you do, you've got to do it, um, you know, a thousand percent. Um, yeah. you know, sometimes, rarely, I give little uh, seminars or courses or, or teach at an academy, uh, a short photography course. And, I, I, you know, I've said to the students, you know, if, and then they're not photography students per se, they were more like web uh, design, interior design, but they were learning photography as part of the course. And I was like, if you ask me, do, should I go into photography as a business? Um, because you're thinking about that. My, my actual reaction is going to be no, don't turn that into a business. Now, if you are a photographer, you must be a photographer, you need to be a photographer, then absolutely yes, you will find your way, you'll make your way and hopefully you'll be successful. But it's not exactly like a prime choice for a way of making a livelihood if you want to pay mortgages and have kids and insurances and stuff. It's, you know, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing and you have to be there a thousand percent. There's no slacking. You're only as good as your last job and you must always grow and learn because the minute you stop that, you're dead in the water. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. Oh, the work yeah. sort of starts to become a bit hacky. And if you're just doing it on autopilot, then yeah. you're not serving the clients well. And there, there will always be someone who has that passion uh, for the craft that's going to be able to Indeed. do it better. So um, you weren't born in Spain. How did you end up there? 
Okay, so I was born in the States. Uh, we had family in Spain, and um, when we were quite young, my f my father decided he wanted to travel the world, and Spain was the logical first stop to, to and we never left. Well, we left, but we never traveled the rest of the world. We landed in Spain and stayed here four years, and uh, I have a very deep connection to this country. Um, you know, it was between ages of six to 10. Then from 10 to 18, I lived in California, where I also have a very deep connection. It's my, although I was born in Florida, that's my home state as far as I'm concerned. And what kind of happened was that I was working in the film industry since I left high school. I actually, in high school, I did a, a course in special effects working. Uh, at a place in the city that was doing titles, uh, anyhow. And then I went to work with a film director who was sort of, uh, of the generation of the Coppola, um, Spielberg thing, but he was more in documentaries and national TV commercials, yeah. um, Douglas Clark. And that was a great start for me there. In fact, I was just remembering the other day that while working for him, he helped me buy my first camera lens. And he very graciously, as a Christmas gift, said, you know, the lens is my gift to you. You know, oh, just pay wow. me back the camera body. It was, yeah, it really is. It was very touching. In fact, I also remembered his uh, letter of recommendation when I left, you know, was very sweet. But basically the main line was, I recommend Wayne to do anything he says that he can do. <laughs> and, you know, that actually applies very much to what we're going to talk about today, because I would never tell a client that I'm going to do something that I don't feel talking business now, a hundred percent you know, confident that I can do or that I want to do and I'm going to make myself be able to do it. I'm not going to take on something that I'm, you know, hey, this isn't really my specialty because you're going to let yourself down. You're going to let them down. There's a chain of consequences there and a reputation that, you know, I, I think you need to find what it is you love because what it is you love is what you're going to do best and you're going to enjoy it best. And it's a heck of a lot better than working in an office with fluorescent lights and hating it. Mm. Um, so it's a privilege to be able to work this way. But it's also a responsibility to yourself and to the client and that so, you grow and that you deliver. And looking down the client list, like you've got some really big names, the Condé Nast Traveller and, 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 and Vogue and, and uh, like British Airways, like major, um, you know, corporate groups and architect interiors, like you've done everything and like the work is incredible and some, some beautiful shots there. So you didn't, you didn't like start out shooting that. So how, how, how did you, how did you get from starting to getting to this point? Okay. Like we're, we're, we're 35 years in the business now. Like how did yep. that, how did that happen? Is it something that just evolved naturally? Cause obviously you started in the film days, made that transition mm -hmm. to digital but how does it mm -hmm. how did that how did this how does it happen how did that happen so i i was kind of let me try to do it relatively quickly it's a lot of years to sum up but i think i can do that um how i started started in photography was by starting to come back to Spain, my my family moved here and I was still in California. So when we came to visit Spain and I started rediscovering Spain, which had gone from the dictatorship to the de transition to democracy, but only six years had passed for Spain. But for me, it had been going from 10 to 16 until I came back. So I came back and was struck by all these visuals, uh, important visuals that were the Spain of my childhood. So I started capturing them on borrowed cameras and and rolls of film that people would gift me. Wow. And then I'd go back to the States and show them to my boss and my friends in slideshows. And 
you know, did that for two or three summers and wasn't really taking pictures in the in the middle. But every summer I'd come back and the, the results would be a quantum leap forward. Yeah. And basically, I there were pictures that just called out and said, you need to be a photographer. Now, little did I know at the time um, that I was actually already taking architectural photography. One thing I've noticed is that the visuals I created on those very first shots – which you can still see on my website in the sort of other visions sector where it's a bit more personal. Uh, they're still valid and they're still on my website. And the things that attract me now are still the things, you know, were the things that were catching my eye back then. I was photographing Sausalito at twilight with the moon rising over the bay or doing crazy double exposures of the of that moon on my forehead on a self-portrait. Mm, uh, you know, when I started doing architectural work a bit – see, I come from generations of architects. And the one thing I knew I didn't want to be was an architect, not for any particular reason that I dislike it, but I didn't want that for me. So as soon as I started getting into this photography of Spain and decided to leave my life in California, come to Spain to take pictures of Spain, the people, the landscape, the culture, the towns, you know, that's still what I enjoy the most is just hopping in a car and driving around and discovering and capturing these things. My father had left Marbella and uh, didn't have pictures of what he had done here. So he said, would you go take pictures of, of my work? And I went, oh. Yuck. Buildings. <laughs> Buildings. All right. I guess twist my arm. What happened was I discovered that I was good at it. I loved it. People started asking me to do more. A friend of my father, who is a main architect here, Marco Sines, who later helped me build my house and studio and become a neighbor of his, you know, life has amazing circles. He said, I want you to do my portfolio. And then his construction company that he was mostly working with went, wow, we want you to do our – so all of a sudden I found myself in this little tourist resort town, which is kind of what I had left behind in California and Sausalito, what I was kind of trying to escape – coming to Spain to be out in nature, I, I found my life happened here. And once again, kind of like when music and photography is like make a decision, I went, yeah, okay, this is a cool place to live and work. And so there's a lot of things that happen when you start. You, you know, First of all, there was no internet. I had no education in photography or, or business. So my only guide to how to survive as a photographer was the ASMP American Society of Media Photographers Business Bible. Right. And that was all I had. And that was, you know, I've got to I've got to say that now because we're going to talk about art and we're going to talk about uh, the techniques and technology of photography. But also it's really important to understand the business of photography because it, it doesn't really work great if you're a great photographer and can't eat. Yeah, true. So you do, you do need to be able to pay your bills and make enough money. And, you know, when I give these little courses I give, sometimes I barrage people with information about business because I was like, I wish somebody had been there to barrage me with this information when I was starting. Yeah. Like, you know, if you don't get a deposit from the client or the client is in a, an amazing rush, watch out. Those are danger right. uh, signals. Yeah. And – you can get caught up in these rushes because, you know, oh, I've got to do it. I'm going to get it done for you and all that. But you can leave yourself very, very, very exposed. Although there's one huge advantage now to the digital workflow is that you can deliver jobs in low resolution with a watermark on them. Yeah. But not deliver usable images until, uh, you know, you get paid, which in the old days, it was a trade-off. It was like, okay, here's the slides. Uh, you know, wait. It's like it's like the ransom. You know, it's like the, the hostage. It's like, you know, where's my check? Oh. 
Well, you can't really do that, can you? So you got to give them the slides and hope they send you the check. And you were so exposed in those days. You know, mm. there's, there's some great advantages to the new digital world, that's for sure, even on the business sense. So, so architecture so, is in your blood. It was mm-hmm. like you, your father was an architect. My father, my uh, his grandfather, his grandfather's son, his son. I've got a huge swath of architecture on that side of the family, and I guess it's just in the genes. You can't get away from it. Now, I, I will say that what I did, how I learned with no seminars or classes uh, for m- you know many of my first years – Um, First of all, people talk about having a style and that can scare the heck out of you because when you don't have a style and you're just starting, you're like, how do I get a style? What's a style? And I I don't think you need to run out and fake a style. I think a style is something that should surge forth naturally when you start to do work. And you've got to take a lot of pictures. You've got to be out there practicing. My training was wasting film. Yeah. And I wasting film in, you know, in a gracious sort of way, Um, you know, you we didn't have the advantage of digital. It was rolls of film. It cost money. That was a good incentive to try to get it right because every shot you took and developed was, you know, X amount of pet sensor dollars per mm. frame. So you you go out and you, you shoot and then you analyze it. It's very important to come in and analyze everything you've done and maybe even take notes so you kind of remember what you were doing on each frame if you have a hard time with that and start to see what works for you. And what produces good results? And then you delve deeper into that and you try to tweak that. And equipment-wise, for example, you, you know, I might have started with a 28-millimeter lens. And when that – you know, I, I was fortunate enough to start in an area where I could work professionally with 35-millimeter. And you know, it wasn't really high quality, but the market I was in accepted that. Mm. So as I grew, I started needing a wider angle lens. So when the 28 just wasn't giving me what I needed, then I bought a 20. And when the 20, I learned to squeeze every inch and juice out of that lens that I could possibly get. But there's a wall behind me and I just can't possibly <laughs> be further back. And I need something wider Then I got the 17. And eventually when the 14 millimeter rectilinear lens came out from Canon, which was very expensive, I got that and I pulled it out and I was like, oh my God, I can't this. This is horrible. This distorts everywhere. I mean, you know, forget it. And I put it in the safe and went, what a waste of money. Excuse me. Um, you know, but what happened was I got myself into a situation where I was like, I need something wider than the 17. I'm going to have to pull out that 14 from the safe. Yeah. And then by force, I had to learn. So you learn that, okay, you do not tilt it at all up Mm. or down like all architectural photography. Basically, you want to stay totally level and then hopefully you are able to get some shift lenses. Of course, nowadays you have a lot of options for parallax correction in Photoshop. But ideally, if you really want to work in architecture and interiors, you will get shift lenses such as the Canon 17 and 24 millimeter and so on. And you stay totally level and, you know, you want to kind of generally shoot from the center of the room or let's say centered on the room from one end straight out to the other end because if you angle it slightly left or right then the distortion and we're talking extreme wide angle lenses this happens less with normal lenses okay but when you're doing interiors and facades and you go you're positioning yourself in the center of a building or room and you're shooting straight onto it to have this beautiful symmetry if you're one millimeter off to the left or to the right, all your horizontal lines are going to be slightly distorted in that direction. So your left-hand half is going to have one sense of distortion and your right-hand 
half another. And it's not going to feel balanced. It's not going to feel solid. If you're a millimeter down or upward, your vertical lines are going to go off. Your parallax is going to go off. You know, sort of that pyramid effect when you look at a, when you photograph a tall skyscraper from the ground and it kind of turns into a pyramid. Yeah. So, you know, these are things that make the building look like they're badly built or just don't have a good aesthetic to them. So you start to learn. And that's, you know, I learned that with the 14 millimeter, I had to be exceptionally rigorous to give it a feeling of solidity and an aesthetic that would work with it. And you, you, I, I would recommend people do that. They pump the most they can get out of the equipment they start with and slowly grow as they need. And as far as architecture and interiors go, talking lighting to start with, hmm. I, I really sum it up real easily. Don't. Right. Don't so light. Just use net available. Yep. Who's available light? People say, what What flash? I've got a flash. Forget the flash. Flash is like a whole secondary world. You first need to learn the technique and aesthetics of working with natural light. And for that, you are going to need a tripod. Get a tripod. Get a decent one that has three axes. Don't get the, like these video ones that uh, tilt up and down and, sh- and rotate left and right. But then you don't have like a, a horizontal. You, you want – and you don't want a ball head because every time you loosen that, your whole framing is going to go off because mm. it moves in every which direction. So ideally, you kind of want that like the Manfrotto 410 is a relatively inexpensive and pretty solid piece of tripod head that has its three axes and allows you uh, millimetrical adjustments and also quick releases if you suddenly need to pan or shift in a direction, like to change from a vertical to horizontal on, on 35. So that that is like your key piece of equipment. You need a, a decent stable tripod that's not going to fall over on you. Okay, that's important. Hang a, a weight off of it if it's not a, an expensive heavy tripod. And put your bag on the center yeah. column or something. And have a good head with three independent axes. Axes and hopefully with like micro adjustments to them. So you can make little tweaks because the better you shoot it on location, the less work you're going to have to do afterwards. And when you're doing one shot and another and another and another, believe you me, that saves you a lot of pain and suffering afterwards. All right. So let's let's break this down a little bit more. So let's say you're commissioned by a resort to come along and shoot interiors and then exteriors. And then obviously the whole package would be, and we need some lifestyle shots. I've seen you um, hang in cranes above like, you know, 20 feet up and things like that lately on your Instagram. Yeah, I don't like heights. No, I hate heights. (laughs) And I don't like heights. (laughs) And I'm always doing cranes and I used to be up in helicopters with the door taken off oh the my side. God. Oh, this yeah. is my worst nightmare. It's okay right. while I'm working. While I'm working, it's okay. When you're paying attention to the fact that you're 20 meters straight up in the air on a crane or a helicopter, <laughs> then it gets a little scarier. <laughs> All right. So let's go through your work pro- uh, your thought process mm-hmm. here and uh, maybe I can get some tips for the listeners. So uh, when you're approached by, let's say, uh, a, a resort to come and photograph everything, what what do you do? Are you going? Are you um, turning up and uh, shooting straight away? Are you scoping? Are you thinking about light? Are there apps that you use? Let, let's go through. So let's let's plan now. Where a uh, hotel chain uh, has yeah. approached you and uh, they've built a new new building and they need the entire resort photographed. What what is your thought process? How, how are you working through this? Okay. So there's a bunch of factors I think that we need to cover here in, more or less. The first thing is before you go, um, even just to get the estimate 
out and have it within an appropriate reason so that it's a win-win scenario for everyone and you mm-hmm. actually get the job, uh, you need to really understand what the client needs. So it's really important to ask the right questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Asking questions, if it's done properly, shows that you're a professional. Right. Uh, unless you're asking the wrong questions, in which case you come off as an amateur. But mm-hmm. you, you kind of need to know what what is the purpose for this? How many shots are you looking for? Um um, do you have any proportions or formats uh, preset that we need to fit? Like, does your way up website only take horizontal images or worse yet, it only takes panoramic horizontal images? You know, these things will show that you are a professional and you're anticipating problems and that you want to understand them before you get into it. Right. If it's a hotel, need to know what kind of access you'll have to the places. Are you going to shoot it maybe when the hotel is closed or low season or the middle of the week? Or, you know, are they going to close down areas for you by, you know, asking the clients not to do this area during the time of day that you've determined it needs to be shot? Is that possible? So there's a lot of things that go into first understanding what your client actually needs done in essence, mm. what they're trying to communicate, the emotion, the, the impact, the, the, the marketing that they need. And then on the technical side, these sort of questions of the quality of the image. Does your camera produce a high enough quality image? Are they going to be doing billboards? Is it, right. is it web? Does it need to be horizontal? All that stuff kind of needs to be clear in advance. And, you know, if you put together a list of questions, you might not bring them all up on the phone call, but you might follow up with an email with all the questions that you can think of that to make the planning go good. That's really important. Once – now, I, I personally have done – Everything, I think, in my 35 years yeah. uh, doing this. Um, I can land and run without having seen the place in advance, but I prefer to have a pre-production uh, time. Yeah. Excuse me. And if it's possible, if it's something like a resort, I'm actually learning a little late in life that – Ideally, you want to go there and experience it from the client's point of view first. And I know it almost sounds a little tacky, like saying, hey, I want a couple free days in your hotel before <laughs> no, we start I working. Get that. That's very but it sensible. really is important. Yeah. You know, I have this place that hired me once for for two days of work and we liked it so much. It's the Asia Gardens Hotel in uh, Benidorm. And it's kind of like a little hit of Asia in Spain. And it's such a beautiful peaceful uh, place that I actually, you know, have gone quite a few times sort of doing a deal with them where I take my family part of the time and work part of the time, which I have to say can be a bit tricky because you kind of wind up not really being with the family, not really having vacation. So you have to, you know, you have to learn how to balance these things. But anyhow, um, where I am going and where am I going with this? Uh, what were we talking about just before? So you're, you're setting up and you're, you want to oh, spend right, some time so, in the space yes, first. Yes. I'm back on track. I'm back on track. <laughs> so what happened was um, after finishing shooting, I went to relax with my family and I went into a pool that I had not swum in as a photographer uh-huh. and I looked up and I saw this beautiful image and I went, oh my God. We never saw this. We never did this. This is a great shot. We've got to do this for them. Now, it was in the, I had to be in the middle of a pool where I could barely tiptoe and I needed a tripod because I had to shoot it with a shift lens Yeah. and really didn't want to get my equipment wet. So what they wound up doing was putting a metallic ladder in the middle of the pool for me, closing off this pool so nobody would jump in and get my camera wet. <laughs> yeah. And, 
uh, no, we set up some sunbeds with some cocktails at the far end, which is what we were looking at with a palm tree hanging over it. And I, I literally, in a bathing suit, waded in, holding my camera straight up into the air as far out of the water as I could till I got to the ladder, climbed up to the ladder, kind of used the ladder as a tripod. Uh, because I didn't have with me my sort of uh, clamp attachment to clamp the, the camera onto the tripod. I have thousands of things, but you don't always bring everything with you. Yeah. Of course, the one you don't bring is the one thing you need. That's yeah, that, that, of course. <laughs> um, and I use the ladder as sort of my, my – to elevate me and as a bit as a tripod to give me stability to get this shot. So you really actually kind of want to – experience the place to get the flavor of it and get inspiration and ideas. And that's another thing. You need to listen to your inspiration. You need to not ignore little little brilliant light bulbs that go off sometimes that you go, I can't pay attention to that. Now I'm trying to get the shot. You You want to stop and listen to your inner creativity. And if all of a sudden it says to you, something's wrong or this isn't the right time or actually if we added a model to the shot or or hey what if we threw some flowers in here or, or made a huge uh, um, fruit bowl with juices I don't know whatever it is that flashes in your head you need to be paying attention to those things because that's that's what that's opening up your inner creativity challenge while you, you know because photography is a very difficult thing we're trying to do basically what's a scientific and technical um, art form yeah and at the same time be free flow and creative in art and so you really kind of need to dominate your technical stuff first so that you can have that as a second nature and allow your creativity to run rain after that yeah well let's just um, touch on that so that that state i call it that the flow state where if you've done the work if you've done this enough time because i know that when you're um early on you're starting out in your career like and still learning the craft then when you're on a shoot all you're thinking about is f8 one two hundredth of a second is the image sharp is it exposed and you're not hearing these little whispers of inspiration that are coming in but as you uh, get better and better at at learning the actual craft this all of the uh, technical side of photography is almost um, automatic right and it, it then- needs to be Yes, mm-hmm. it, Go ahead. you need to get to that point where it is automatic and then when you're in that flow state where you're in the zone, it's my favorite place to be, then you, you start to hear those whispers uh, and it's often, you know, you didn't plan to look left and uh, but mm-hmm. then you just hear that look left and you do and there's that image or as you were in the pool, look up and there it yep. is. So um, and, and this is a matter of like doing the work repetitive, being in control, understanding how to work with your tools uh, to be in a position where you can take advantage of that uh, inspiration. And, and that that's a great point. All right. So let done, me, let me yep. just throw in two quick things on that while we're on it. Um, yep. For people who aren't at that point yet or not totally secure at that point yet or taking on jobs that may be a little bit big for them, mm. you know, try to pace it so that you can 
set up your positions before you need to shoot them. Yeah. So that you can get there, feel totally confident that you've got the angle you want, you've got the technique down, I'm going to be shooting at, you know, this aperture, this speed, and you're there in advance so that when the moment of light comes, because after all, you know, light is our palette, that's what we're using, form and, and the subject and all that are there, but they're kind of secondary. If the light is wrong, you've got everything going against you and you need to work it. If the light is right, it's just being handed to you. Yeah. So go there before and set it up so you've got all that technical stuff out of the way and then you can take a deep breath and and go with the creative part i i kind of actually call what i do a little bit like you know i like the movie dances with wolves i kind of call what i do dances with light i like to dance around with the light and obviously if you don't have your technique down that that's going to be a little bit hard to be able to do so you want to be there set it up and then try to dance with the light before moving on to the next one and also just to wrap up a little bit on style i talked about you know starting and getting the most out of every lens. And I learned that I love polarizing filters on exteriors and I use them almost all the time. And that's kind of become a visual hallmark of what my imagery looks like. Unconsciously, by being a, doing what you love, as I said before, and getting your technique down and and delving deeper into the things that work for you, one day you'll suddenly discover that that's your style. Yeah, That's to me is how you find your style. Okay, for people who are like, oh, my God, what's my style? What do I do? I need a style. I don't know how to do this. Patience, love, uh, you know, a thousand percent involvement (laughs) and and it will come and it will come. And and I'm, I'm quite happy to say now that most people, you know. When they see an image of mine, even if my name's not associated on it, they're like, oh, that's that's a Chisan. Yeah. And that that's really cool because it wasn't a conscious thing. So don't be scared about that. <laughs> that's great. That's that's great. And I, I agree totally about that, getting yourself in a position where you're set up and you take all of that stress away. I do the same Absolutely. thing and still do with my portrait so I know this is the shot, I, this is how I'm mm-hmm. lighting it, and then, uh, and then I've got time on set to play. You know, and I think that's really important. Very early on, I had to do a portrait of the Baron von Thiessen, who's a huge figure in Europe now, deceased. And, um, you know, I'm not mainly a portrait photographer. It is something that tends to make me a little more anxious than when I walk into architecture because I can just – you send me anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter what it is or what it is. I'm going to land and kill it or, you know, do a big pre-production and plan it all out carefully and then kill it. Yeah. Um, And so they said you have 15 minutes with them. And I went – uh, can I go an hour early? And I don't know where I got this from because I was a young photographer, but thank God it's something I read in ASMP Business Bible or somewhere suggested that, set yeah. it up before. And they yeah. went, oh, yeah, sure, you can come to his house an hour earlier. Yeah. So I got there. I set up my lighting. I used my assistant as my model. I perfected what I wanted. And when he walked in, it was just like, oh, hi, yeah, great. Yeah, just could you stand right there? Yep, yeah, perfect. Bam, bam, bam. Okay, we got it. And he was like, Really? That's yeah. it? Do you want to do and then he said, Do you want to do anything else? There and then go. I was able to wander around with him and find niches and nooks and crannies that, that looked cool and get secondary shots. Anyhow, uh, that, enough of that. <laughs> exactly. That's what I do and because that gives the client confidence in you as a photographer. And I've always done that and I don't know where I got the idea either, but it's like when they said you've got fifteen minutes, I'm like, Well, can I set up an hour early? I've done exactly the same thing. And you when when you've got a client in front of you and you pull out that frame one and you go, All right, guys, what do you think of this? And it's like you've nailed the lighting that and they love it. That gives them the confidence where I, I often I, – I, 
I, I can't get over how many photographers I see that will turn up in that 15 minutes with their setting up lights and their testing and they're pulling out light meters and they're going, no, no, that's not right. That With the client standing there, I'm like, well, that, yeah. that doesn't really instill confidence, does it? So I think that's no. a great tip. And it, it- it closes a lot of doors, I think, you know, to the future, to the possibilities of what can happen on that shoot and, and in the future with that client. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, so everyone pay attention, find your style patiently and be prepared and go early and have a plan. So, all right. So back to this, uh, uh, shooting these interiors and exteriors. So you're in the space. Let's just, let's say you're doing uh, one of the land and run shoots where you don't have time to prepare and obviously you're using your years of experience but if you're w- walking into a space for the first time when and you know that that's the only time you're going to get is there a time of day that you prefer to shoot that you'll get the okay. maximum amount of shots or do you just make it work no matter what right so here's here's my philosophy um if i land and have to start I, uh, you must do a recce before you start because, for example, let's take the example of a one-day shoot, which is pretty common for me on local assignments. And uh, anyhow, um, you know, especially if you're starting, you're probably not doing bigger than one-day shoots because yep. it's, it's, it's expensive. So if you can't go in advance and you're on a one-day or a half-day shoot or whatever it is, got to know what it is you've got to cover because – you need to make determinations really fast about what is going to be the best time for each space you need to cover because you can't make it from the morning into the afternoon and suddenly get stumble onto a shot where you go, oh, my God, that was morning light. It sucks now. Yeah. And you don't have a second opportunity. So, you know, depending on the size of the job, you do a quicker or slower recce. For me, uh, you know, you can shoot something like the facade of a house when it's in the shade. But, you know, now with digital, you can make anything look better. But I try to be at the sweet time for every spot. And I want to know what this, what I think is the sweetest time and a backup time if it has a good backup time in case I can't make it there. Because mm. often things will overlap. They need to be done at the same time or more or less the same time or you're running late and you miss the other one. So you want to know what your backup plan is. So for me on exteriors, I personally like in general when light is coming from the side because first of all you have the sunlight on the building it's coming at a side angle uh, so it is creating a texture of any um, you know design patterns or windows or balconies are going to be having sideways shadows onto that facade you may not want it the very first instance when the light grazes it because all the imperfections and there can be imperfections might be showing too much, right. but you maybe give it like 10 minutes or half an hour after the sun comes onto that side, you know, you're going to have some pretty sweet side light side lighting. And that happens to play in really nicely. If you're like me and love polarizing filters, polarizing filters work best when the sun is at a 90 degree angle. So off to your left or off to your right or in the summertime straight overhead. Yeah. That's when it helps darken the sky. And what that does by darkening the sky, aside from getting rid of reflections on your vegetation and garden and windows or whatever, darkening the blue sky, if, if you're lucky enough to have one behind the building, makes that building pop out more. Right. You know, it's a contrast. Uh, So it's going to make your building pop out against the sky. It's going to make the clouds pop out against the sky. It's going to make the trees. If you go onto my website and look at almost any exterior, even the early twilight shots, 
if you're at the right angle where, you know, the sun has set off to your right or off to your left, that polarizing filter is going to darken the sky before it actually happens and allow you that balance of contrast and, uh, you know, and make the, and almost every exterior shot you're going to see is going to have it. Almost none of the interiors I use it, uh, although occasionally it's useful to get rid of glare on wooden floors or marble floors. So you, you – and I personally, my way of, of seeing architecture in general – and it may become because I've been trained largely in residential, you know, uh, photography uh, and hospitality photography in a beautiful place where there's sunshine and views. And I, I want to communicate the interior with the exterior. And I think I would want to do that. And I don't think I would want to do that if I'm in Berlin on a rainy day or in Washington, D.C. on a snowy day or wherever it is. You know, I'm not saying every shot has to do that. It doesn't. Yeah. But my prime focus when I walk into a room is going to be how does this room communicate itself to the outside world, to the sea view, to the mountain view, to maybe just a blue sky with some some leaves of the trees coming in? I don't know. That's my first focus and concentration because I feel that that gives the place flow. Um, and that's actually the hardest thing to do in interior photography uh, because there's really only three ways to achieve that as your interior is almost invariably, unless it's a glass house, going to be a lot darker than your exterior, especially if it's a sunny day, right. um, which it doesn't have to be. We'll use that as an example. Yeah. So you are either going to have to light the interior in the daytime, which is not going to be in the daytime, hot lights are not really going to work for you because they're, you know, it takes a lot of power to balance out with the sunlight outside. Yep. So you're probably going to have to use strobes. Yep. That's one option. Option two is to photograph it at twilight when the outside light dims and you get a balance inside out. Now, don't worry if you're like, well, but there's only, you know, a couple of 40 watt light bulbs inside. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Because if you wait long enough, the outside sky and silhouettes of the trees and buildings and whatever it is that you have that's not lit up eventually is going to get dark enough to balance with those 100 watts or 50 watts or 1,000 watts of lighting that you have inside. So as long as you're there ready and waiting for the moment when you achieve that balance in apertures between inside and outside, you, you, you'll get a beautiful picture. Now, the problem with that is you may not be able to be in the house at night. Nighttime in the summer could happen at 10 p.m. Yeah. Uh, or, well, you know, fine. and in the yes. winter at, yeah. at 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah. You know, depending on where you are in the world, you know, you can't always be in all places at 11 p.m. at night. Yeah. And it's also a very short period of time. So just while we're on this, because it's one of the first things that attracted me in photography, like I said, like my first pictures were Sausalito at twilight and at nighttime on a tripod. And yeah. I later looked back. And went, oh my God, I was doing architectural photography before I owned a camera, yeah. you know, or taking pictures of arches and ruins in Spain. When I looked back, I realized I had it in me from the beginning and just didn't know it. Yeah. But while we're on twilight photography, here's how you pump the most out of it. If you really need to do a lot of pictures in that short span of like 20 minutes, and depending on the time of the season and year, it can be shorter or longer, um, try not to add any lighting because that requires you to like get that one or two shots perfectly set up that night. So if that's what you're going for, great. But if you want quantity of beautiful shots, especially if you have big spaces that you can't light up in the daytime yeah. easily, um, 
If you want quantity of shots, start a little earlier, throw polarizer on maybe to darken the sky a bit more at first. Of course, now you can do exposure blending also. So that, that's yeah. a technique that we need to talk about because we, we, we talked about strobe lighting. Now we're talking about twilight. Then we'll talk quickly about exposure blending. Um, but when you're doing your twilights, start early, put a polarizer on at first, maybe for those terrace shots, uh, looking to the view. Take it off when it starts getting too dark. Turn your camera first towards where the sun rose because where the sun rose in the morning is where it's going to get darkest first. Right. So you're going to start getting that contrast level happening when you – point to where the morning sun rises and that's going to give you an extra five minutes very valuable five minutes to start shifting around to eventually wind up shooting your last shots looking to where the sun has set because that's still maintaining some color in the sky yeah. where the sun has set for like an extra five ten fifteen minutes the only other thing you need to be aware of is that the more lit up a room is, the earlier the contrast is going to happen. Right. So a, a dimly lit room is going to happen much later into the post-sunset than a brightly lit room, which might happen like pretty much right 20 minutes after sunset. And what can happen otherwise is that the glass can turn into mirrors. So if you get there too late, the glass actually becomes a mirror and then you're reflecting the inside instead of seeing the outside. So the trick for this is, and this is the million dollar extra tip, try to be able to control the inside lighting. If you get to a place too late and you're getting like a mirror the, effect the inside or it's yeah. overwhelming, turn off the lights either for a set of frames so you have – some pictures of the windows with nothing reflecting in them or get your assistant to turn off the lights partway through the exposure. So let's say your inside light exposure is three seconds, but the outside really needs 20. Take a 20 second exposure and have your assistant throw off all the lights or the bloody fuse box to turn everything off at three seconds. And then you get a proper exposure inside and a proper exposure outside. So there's all these tricks how to juice the most out of that brief, 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 but magical twilight period. That's a great tip. Um, all right. That, that's amazing. So let me just quickly move on to uh, yeah, if yeah. you're okay Adding with that. A little bit exposure of light. fusion. Yeah. yeah. Those are kind of the three main ways of coping with interior photography. Lighting it probably with strobes if it's daytime. Looking for the the, the self-balancing moment at twilight, which, of course, has a lot of magic and mystery. Now, one thing I will add to that, I don't like working after all the light has gone from the sky. Yeah. Because then it becomes gloomy instead of glamorous. Yes. So once the sky goes black, you don't have that beautiful purple or blue. It, you don't see anything that's not lit up. So if there's a palm tree that's not lit, instead of having the silhouette of a palm tree against the purple sky, it just becomes black, yeah. a black hole. Yeah. That, for me, the last in gram of light is gone from the sky. I stop. Right. Okay. Now – your other option nowadays, since nowadays, you know, since digital, I've been doing digital for like 15 years now. Yeah. And I reveled in the renaissance of it because all of a sudden you didn't need to carry lights. You didn't need to go with an assistant. For the first time in 20 something years, I was able to go with a rolling backpack and a tripod on my own and do a job without having to drag a van full of gear and lighting. And so. You know, I, I, I like I do with everything, I milked that for the most it could give me and learned that through and through until I started seeing where that was not appropriate anymore. Mm. 
And now I always travel, always when it's possible, with an assistant and lighting so I can choose what to do in each scenario. So what we're looking at here with this advent of digital technology is that you can easily in Photoshop Photoshop, you can align various frames. Now, don't kick the tripod. Don't change your aperture. Leave your aperture in one place because as you change your aperture, the depth of field is going to change and things are going to shrink and increase and they're not going to align properly. So to do this, you want to be on a tripod. You want to keep the same aperture. You can change your ISO. You can change your shutter speed and take, say, a shot with a proper exposure shot with two stops darker and two stops brighter. As an example, you can do a stop, a stop and a half. I like halves more than thirds. There's millions of variations on this. And so, if it's sorry, a huge Wayne, do you do you prefer to change your ISO or are you changing shutter speed I for change that? My shutter speed. You prefer to I, change when, shutter speed. Yeah. Yep. ISO the problem with ISO is uh, you know, as soon as you go past a certain point, you're going to mm. be starting to get digital noise and yep. then you're going to have to do no production on that and it's definitely an option and obviously technology is moving on it becomes easier and easier to deal with that but since we're dealing with architecture where basically nothing's moving unless you have a windy day and the curtains and and maybe vegetation's moving you really have the luxury of saying okay I'm going to work at 100 or 200 ISO I'm going to leave my aperture probably in the middle of the camera range so if you have an f2.8 or 4 lens that goes to f22 Probably your sweet spot on that lens is going to be in the middle around 8 and 11. Okay. Right. I usually yep. choose uh, 8 and, you know, 9.5. That's smack your in the favorite. middle. That's your favorite. That's uh, favorite. Aperture. Uh, yeah. You know, unless I'm <laughs> a shallow focus shot or something that's not architecture, I'm on 9.5, 100 ISO, and I'm only changing my shutter speed. Right. And what that allows me to do is you get good depth of field. You get good sharpness in the corners of your wide angles, which you're probably not going to get wide open. You don't get into issues of diffraction, which as you start to close the lens down like we did in the old film days to like go to F22 or 32 to get the maximum depth of field on digital, that creates a loss of resolution. Uh, which uh, Canon has a way of getting around, but it's a bit slow, and I'm not sure other manufacturers do. So you kind of don't want to go past f11 because you're going to start to actually lose sharpness of the image while you're gaining depth of field. Right. So anyhow, we're, we're there. F9.5, you're taking a shot at one second, a shot at four seconds, and a shot at a, you know half a second. Yeah. And hopefully that's going to give you your dynamic range from the bright dark and middle edge and then you can either blend those and I like to use the, the term exposure fusion rather than HDR because HDR does have some kind of not such good <laughs> connotation <laughs> yes. in, in architectural and interior photography and yeah. perhaps in photography in general you know it can be way overdone mm. um, it's a useful tool but when I do it I try to make it look realistic I mean yeah. My whole way of doing this, let me make an, a, a little comment here because I think we have time. Not a lot, but we have time. Yeah. I like things to look realistic. I'm not one of those photographers who is going to go in and spend a whole day lighting up two or four shots to make it look absolutely whap blow knock you out of your chair. But it has nothing at all to do with the reality of the place when you get there. Now, that might work for corporate photography where no one's going to see the innards of a factory and you made yeah. it look awesome. 
But when you're dealing with residential or, or spaces that people are going to go into and see later, you know, it's bad enough already that I make it look so much better than reality because <laughs> <laughs> I have to turn this four dimensional space, like consider this beautiful villa that someone might want to purchase. And you're there and the sun's warming your skin and the, you, the, 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 the flowers are smelling and, you know, the birds are singing and you've got to put that on a two dimensional yeah. piece of paper that going to see in cold Russia or New York and to yeah. make them want to go there, it's got to be better than the plain flat image. So, you know, you've got to make it. And, and my whole philosophy uh, is making things look beautiful. Yes. So I have this knack of making things look more beautiful than they are in reality, but within reality. Yeah. It's kind of like the old days where you chose your lens to enhance the situation. Well, I'm choosing my lens. I'm choosing my time of day. I'm choosing whether I do it at twilight or supplement or use a reflector or how I light it. I'm making choices to extract the most beauty that is actually probably really there but that most people are not paying attention to and not seeing because they're in the four-dimensional time space. I have to translate that, and you as a photographer will have to translate that into a two-dimensional image that works. And let me add, because I know we're running short on time, that there's no excuses. You cannot say to that guy in Russia looking at that brochure, oh, I didn't notice that that plug that cord of the lamp running across the floor and tied in knots and you're just not there to do that and you can't say well I was under pressure and I had to do it at the wrong time you can't there's no excuses the photograph has to work I don't care how you get there I don't care if you HDR it I don't care if you retouch it for five days yeah I don't care took it in 30 seconds on your iPhone. The image is there and it works or it doesn't. You cannot follow that image up with excuses to anyone. It's simply out of your control and not appropriate. So whatever it is you do, you've got to nail it. Fantastic. However it is you do it. Um, I've just got to ask one more question because there's, yeah. there's one thing in your style that I, I absolutely love and it's, it's basically the way that you create life in an image where it might not be there. And I've seen you do this. I was watching you do this um, uh, a couple of months back, but like bringing uh, lighting a room to make it look like there is sunlight streaming uh, through the room. And I've, right. I know that you've done night shoots where it's, it's nighttime, but you make the room look like it's lit with sunlight and it's a really simple technique or you make it look simple um very quickly if you had a very basic kit and maybe uh, a couple of speed lights is there a way that you can create that sort of feel of light because you know if you've got a space and it's just lit with soft light it can look uh really flat and the way that you add the beautiful shadows like there is sunlight streaming in how do you do that <laughs> okay so generally i tend to do that more in the daytime again yep. kind of respecting the reality of the space yep. if we do it in a twilight situation it might be more like some sort of a a floodlight coming in and just giving a drama but i do yep. tend to keep it more to a daytime scenario to, yep. to make it feel realistic. And it's usually when I don't have the advantage of light streaming in because yeah. the sun's too high because of yeah. the season or I can't be there at the right moment or it's a cloudy day. Yeah. So if you don't have big lights to help you get power to do that, you can achieve that to some extent with speed lights. Yeah. Um, I think what you're going to want to do is maybe double them up in the exact same position outside, yeah. put them on maximum power, use a radio controller or whatever you've got yeah. to 
pop them off at a distance. Um, and you're going to obviously at that point be forced to bump up your ISO because if you're going to be blending it into your, say, uh, and I very much nowadays like taking a series of natural light shots and then a series of flash pops and sort of blending my natural light version with the best of the flash version. So yeah. I'm not getting a straight flash shot or a straight natural light shot, but kind of the best of both worlds. So I almost make two versions, like a natural light version, the best I can, a flash lit version, the best I can. Then I'll put one on top of the other and, you know, erase away to show the best of both. Yeah. And so that's a pretty cool technique and something you can do without having a lot of lighting. Are you using any modifiers on your speed light or are you just sort of narrowing the focus beam of the speed light down to like, you know, 200 millimeters if you can? So you've got a very narrow, hard Specific beam. thing. Yep. That, that's going to help you if you're trying to create that ray of light effect. That ray of but- light, yeah. But not necessarily. It all depends on the balance of power. Now, like I say, you're going to be stuck at your aperture, so you might not want to go to 9.5 because that's taking away a lot of power from your flash. We don't have time to talk about that. But uh, your daylight is affected by your shutter speed, but your flashlight is not. Yes. So your flash is is only going to be affected by your ISO and by your aperture. So you're going to want to boost your ISO up and maybe open up your aperture a bit to get more power from those little flashes you have. Yeah. But trying to still keep a good depth of field carefully so maybe you're opening to 8 or 6.7 which is going to double your flash power as compared to 9.5 you can go from your 100 iso maybe to 800 iso which is going to you know give you you know a huge eight times more flash power again there and then you're going to be playing with your shutter speed fantastic Um, now i would definitely recommend you do some pops of it that way but you also take some pops without the flash going from the outside you know uh, exposure to the inside exposure and then maybe blend those naturally and then blend your flash shots in separately onto that master yeah and this is something Uh, that you can experiment with uh you're in your lounge room or in your bedroom you know and just like get the hang yeah have a play and get get really good at it so that when you are on the job it's not experimenting on the job uh wayne i know you have to go you've got another appointment i wish i I did i would love love to to keep you for hours yeah (laughs) i know but we could maybe do this because i didn't really get to exteriors and that you know there's a whole lot more so i might um get you to come back on i guess so that uh, yeah. So just before we go, where can people um, connect with you and find find your work? Okay. I'm a little bit slow on social media, but um, my commercial work, you know, the work I've been doing since I had the first borrowed cameras until recently is all on my website, which is www.chasan.com, which is C-H-A-S-A-N. Dot com. Uh, that's where you're going to find all, all you know, this work that we've been talking about. Now, uh, you can also go to my Instagram, which is Wayne Chasan, W-A-Y-N-E-C-H-A-S-A-N. Um, now, I, I have to say, for better or for worse, that is actually kind of a behind-the-scenes uh, behind take on life. That is mostly shot with my iPhone, mostly things that catch my eye when I'm traveling around the world, relaxing, shooting, just 
Yeah, and that's how I started in photography. And to me, that's part of the beauty of it yeah. is it reconnects me with the passion and whatever it is that catches my eye in any instant. Um, and I can I tend to either barrage people with exciting things as they happen in real life time or the next day. And sometimes I kind of disappear for a week or two, which I know isn't great. But, you know, I catch up on family admin or whatever, and I can sometimes disappear and kind of not post anything at all. But generally, I like to keep a flow going and it sometimes I'll pepper it with uh, with something from the website or a behind the scenes thing, but usually it's travels. I love time lapses of the planes taking off and landing. Yeah, I love they're, those. They're, they're so exciting. Yeah. And I, I actually don't tend to put selfies. At first, I put none at all, but <laughs> I do. <laughs> on this crazy trip that you were talking about, where I was like, you know, um, Spain to Amsterdam to Florida, stop, go, Sydney, Perth, LA, uh, and back. It actually kind of became a challenge to take a selfie of my face as I as I lived <laughs> through that experience, but I, I, I like not to subject people to that most of the time. Fantastic. Uh, those are the best two best two places, and obviously my my emails on there and the websites on the Instagram, so you won't have a hard time finding me. Awesome. Well, I thank you so much for your generosity, and we definitely will uh, get you back again. So, Wayne, thanks so much. True pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> Cool. So that was Wayne Chassan. I think I thought that was so insightful and I thought that it was such a good thing that he brought up that when you before you even start shooting, you need to ask your client the right questions. I think one yeah. of the things, one of the most neglected questions, having been the client many times, one of the most neglected questions is is when the photographer doesn't bother to ask how will the how will the shots be used? Because that will often determine the format and the and the composition and and, um, you know, how much space there's going to be, negative space there's going to be on a page. And a lot of the work can be done by asking what kind of um, – uh, you know, what if it's for a particular client, what kind of business it is, as as yep. Wayne mentioned, and also, you know, who the clientele is, so that he can match the images accordingly. So I I love that. I think yeah. that that's such an important skill for a photographer to have, and it's it's not about photography, and you know, it's not a ph- photographic skill, but it's so important in order to produce the right photographs. Yeah, so we'll just share that website again if you want to check out his work or connect with Wayne on Instagram. So it's www.chasan.com, C-H-A-S-A-N.com, and his Insta is Wayne.chasan. So, yeah, check him out, a fantastic and uh, top bloke. Yeah, fantastic. All right. I love that we can bring all of these interviews to our listeners from photographers from all different walks of life because even if you're not necessarily um, into interiors, uh, you, you you learn stuff from every photographer along the way anyway. Exactly. So very cool. All right. Well, you're off on your big adventure now, Gina. That's mm. very, very exciting. Um and, and, you know, safe travels. But Thank before you. we let you go, where do we find you online? So ginamilitia.com. So that's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A and uh, social media at Gina Militia. And also you can uh, join me in the goal community. If you're a photographer and you're sitting on the fence about like whether you want to uh, – pursue, take your photography to the next level, check out the goal community. I love 
teaching photography if you haven't already worked that out, but get in Mm. there and join lots of other photographers from all around the world. They're doing so much great stuff. I'm so proud of my Goldies. Love working with you and you can check that out at GinaMilitia.com and click on join the community. What about you, Val? What am I going to be doing? I am doing um, a bit of an accelerated version of the course that I have just enrolled in. So I'm going to be busy studying, to be honest. Um, But you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, make sure you connect uh, with both of us on Facebook. Just join the um, listening the, the podcast community on Facebook. Search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. So until next time, everyone, thanks for listening and we look forward to chatting to you again then. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit GinaMilitia.com.